Good morning. And I want to say good morning to those of us who are watching us online. Every week, I, I afterwards, I find out where people are watching. We have uh, people watching from really all over. We have a, a faithful few from South Africa that are with us every week, and uh, from the West Coast and Alaska. And we just and I really don't know where everybody is from. So if I'm not calling out to you at this point, don't don't get your feelings hurt. Send us a note and let us know where you're watching from. Uh, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer today. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit be with us and give us open minds, give us peace of heart. Uh, as we uh, discuss uh, how you have designed us, uh, we pray that you will give us uh, 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 wisdom and discernment and allow us to breach this topic with peace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are discussing lesson number seven in our quarterly, um, First and Second Thessalonians, and the title this week is Living Holy Lives. And in the uh, Sabbath lesson, it says the following, Paul speaks very clearly about the need to avoid sexual immorality. He's very strong in his language here, saying those who reject his instruction are, in fact, not rejecting him, but the Lord. Uh, the question, first question in my mind is, how would you define sexual immorality? Is it um, like what the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said in 1964 case of Jaco- Jacobulus versus Ohio on the issue of obscenity in the public square where he said, quote, I shall not today attempt further to define the kind of material I understand to be embraced within the shorthand description, hardcore pornography, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so, but I know it when I see it. Do we know sexual immorality when we see it? Well, do you... Obviously, I think we'd all agree that any type of sexual assault, abuse, or molestation is immoral. That's pretty black and white and obvious, right? Okay, so we won't have to discuss that. that we know what that is. But do, you, do we know that sexual immorality when we see it? And do we consider the, the following? Um, paraphilias, which would be, obviously, pe- pedophilia would be. But what about voyeurism or frauderism? Frauderism is where people get sexual gratification out of touching people without that person's knowledge, like in subways and and bus and crowded buses and elevators and and stuff like this. Um, how about if it's only done in in the imagination? If it's just fantasized about, it's not actually practiced. Is that immoral? Yes. Well, what about adultery? Twenty-two percent of married men admit to having an affair. Fourteen percent of married women admit to having an affair. However, a 2002 study found that 45 to 55 percent of married women and 50 to 60 percent of married men actually have had an affair. Only 46 percent of men believe that online affairs are adultery. Think that one through. That means 54% of men don't think online affairs are adultery. More than half. What do you think? Online affairs adultery or not adultery? Yes. Well, how, what, what would contribute to the idea? Could churches and Christian teaching contribute to the idea that online affairs are not adultery? How about the idea that adultery is physical? Or things that people say the only way to commit adultery is through violation of the marriage bed. You heard that statement? That's a quote from Ellen White. So if the only way to commit adultery is violation of the marriage bed, and you're doing it online, well, you're golden. Right? Right? Or do you think that online affairs are adultery? Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said if you think about it in your mind, you've already committed adultery. According to a private investigative company who investigated thousands of people for infidelity, 99.9% of those that they investigated who committed adultery denied they were having an affair and attempted to hide the truth. Does that surprise anyone? 99.9%. Well, it says the exception, the exception is when they confess without being forced into it. That 0.1% who confess on their own. 
then there's just that small percentage come back, feel guilty, and confess. Interesting, though, of that 0.1% who came back and confessed, 78, 70 to 80% of those who willingly confessed to infidelity recovered and enjoyed a strong marriage later. Think that through. What do you think it means? What are the implications? Had an affair, voluntarily confessed, 70 to 80% resulted up with, later down the road, healing and restoring the marriage and having a strong marriage later. Confession is good for the soul. That's a, that's a nice statement, but but let's let's put it into some understanding of what what it means. Why would this be the case? If we're denying, what's that mean about the condition of the heart? The heart hasn't been changed. We're still practicing self protection, right? Selfishness is still ruling if we're denying and distorting. Um, but if we confess, it's a step toward honesty toward truthfulness, and um, may in fact lead to repentance, which is a change of heart. But confession and repentance are not the same. But confession is a step toward repentance, and those who experience repentance in the chain of heart are going to be living selfless and other-centered lives rather than self-centered lives, and thus have a much likelier chance of having a healed relationship. Does this make sense? This is not... I, I found that the observation... Very interesting, considering what we understand to be the underlying principles upon which healthy relationships function. It's not surprising to me that that's what, the way it turned out. What about prostitution? We're asking if you recognize sexual immorality if you see it. Well, have you heard about Logan Campbell? Current Olympian. Anybody watching the Olympics? Okay. Uh, he is currently an Olympian from New Zealand, competing in Taekwondo. After returning from Beijing... Uh, the Beijing Olympics, uh, his bills from travel, equipment, and training were over $120,000 in debt. In preparation to go to London, was going to cost him another $200,000. So he didn't know what to do, so he opened a brothel, which in New, in New Zealand is legal. This was legal. No illegal activity going on. He came under scrutiny from the New Zealand Olympic Committee, however, because they didn't want the Olympics associated with prostitution, um, even though it was legal in New Zealand. And this became public in New Zealand, and some large corporate donations came in to the Taekwondo Foundation for the, Olympic, uh, for the Olympics in New Zealand, which allowed him then to sell his brothel in 2011. And he is now in the Olympics competing. When asked about it, he said in an interview this past week, it, it's a legal business in, in New Zealand. It's completely different from other countries in the world. There was no, I know, um, no one was forced to, uh, into the industry. And they're not doing it because they're in poverty, because they have, because we have a really good welfare system. It's more of a high class thing than you see around the world. I think a lot of people don't understand that uh, as compared to places like Thailand, where I know uh, what it's like in the poorer countries where people don't have a choice to get into that sort of industry. Um, but in New Zealand, it's completely different, so it's fine. He said his parents didn't object to him running a brothel, especially after his mother met several of the women who had worked for him. He said, quote, I've never had anyone in New Zealand be like, why do you do that? That's not right, or anything like that. Do we recognize sexual immorality when we see it? Hmm. What about premarital sex? According to 2007 Youth Risk Behavior Survey, found that high school students uh, who who have engaged in sexual activity to be 32.8 percent of ninth graders, 43.8 percent of tenth graders, 55.5 percent of eleventh graders, 64.6 percent of twelfth graders. Do we recognize it? The average teen watches 15,000 sexual acts uh, on television and movies each year. And studies show that there's a direct uh, relationship between the number of hours watching television sexual um, uh, uh, acts on television and the age at which people engage in their first sexual encounter. Is it immoral to watch those types of programmings? 
is it immoral for parents to let their children watch those programs? Do we recognize sexual immorality when we see it? How about Playboy magazine and other pornographic materials? Uh, Pornography on the Internet, $57 billion worldwide industry, 25% of the Internet searches. One out of every four Internet searches are for pornography on the Internet. But what what about if it's done by um, anime? Anime is, you know, animation. It's not real people. So we're not exploiting other people. Um, It's just all, you know... You know, like cartoon type stuff. But is that immoral then? Still immoral? Yeah, because there is anime porn out there too. Mm-hmm. What happens to the brain character of the person who uses porn, even anime porn? Are we uncomfortable in here today? Why would we be uncomfortable talking about this subject? Who designed us as sexual beings? How much uh, is sexuality part of your identity? <laughs> Do you think of yourself as an it or as a he or a she? Isn't almost everything that you do defined by your sexuality? Why, why are we so uncomfortable talking about it? Who, who wants to keep this whole thing in the dark and in the secret? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do we recognize porn when we? I mean, um, sexual immorality when we see it. What about Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition, Victoria's Secret TV show, Victoria's Secret stores, cheerleaders at a ball game? If the outfits are provocative, is it sexually immoral? Advertising with sexually provocative content. And if you don't think they have sexually provocative content, why do they always have the girl with uh, really tight shorts washing the car that they're trying to sell? Right? Yeah. R-rated movies. Flirting with someone when married. Sexually immoral? I mean, sexually immoral? Flirting with someone when you're single. Hmm. Lewd jokes. Music with sexual reference and innuendo. Is that sexually immoral? Homosexuality. Sex change operations. Self-gratification. Monday's lesson at the bottom states, the word for sexual immorality is porneo in the Greek, which would today cover everything from pornography to prostitution to any sexual activity outside of marriage. Well, the first thing that went through my mind, what's the question? The first question went in my mind, guys? So if it's marriage, it's okay? There you go. So that's the question. If reading the statements is, can you have sexual immorality within marriage? Can you have sexual immorality inside the marriage relationship? This is a comment from one of the founders of our church found in uh, Mind, Character, Personality, first volume, page 224. Because they have entered into the marriage relation, many think that they may permit themselves to be controlled by animal passions. They are led on by Satan, who deceives them and leads them to pervert this sacred institution. He is well pleased with the low level which their minds take, for he has much to gain in this direction. He knows that if he can excite the baser passions and keep them in ascendancy, he has nothing to be troubled about in their Christian experience. For the moral and intellectual faculties will be subordinate, while the animal propensity will predominate and keep in the ascendancy, and these baser passions will be strengthened by exercise while the nobler qualities will become weaker and weaker. What did you hear there? First off, this is just a, a statement. You don't agree with it. But think about what's being said. Is, is what's being said ludicrous? Is what's being said got truth in it? Uh, what, what's, what's being described? Now, this is talking about sexual relations inside a marriage. Did it, did it sound like this person felt that sex, any type of sex inside a marriage is healthy and okay? No. There can be stuff that's not healthy inside a marriage going on. What did you hear? What would, what would be included there? What factors? Boy, you know, you guys were a lot more talkative last week. 
Your heart, your mind. Behaviors affect your heart and mind. Just behaviors? How about fantasies? Well, yes. Thoughts? Hmm. What factors would contribute to damaging changes uh, of, to the person in sexual relations inside a marriage? What are the factors that, that make that damage? Okay, there's one. Coerced coercion. Coercion. Someone being coerced inside the marriage. That you think that doesn't happen around the world? It happens all the time. How about selfishness? The partner is seen as an object for personal gratification rather than a person to be loved and cherished. Can you, can a person be married to someone they see as an object? Yes, and then, in, 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 but because it's now under the umbrella of marriage, it's okay and it's healthy. No, the 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 umbrella of marriage is not magic. You see, healthy relationships require healthy people, and we take our hearts, our minds, our characters, our motives, our principles into that marriage. And if we come into that marriage with unhealthy motives, unhealthy heart, self-centeredness ruling to the point that we will injure the other person, the other person is there to serve me and make my life better, and I'm not there to help and bless them. Well, it, it, you understand that's not going to be a healthy experience. When sex is about self and not about loving the other person, domination, control, humiliation is involved. This would be damaging. We already mentioned coercion. Sex that violates the dignity of the other person. Any sex that's abusive. When genuine love is absent and fear is present, would this be damaging in a marriage relationship? Yes. Why would this be damaging? Well, in the brain, when we are sexually intimate in a loving, healthy way, the brain releases oxytocin and vasopressin. These are two brain chemicals that actually cause an experience of bonding, where two people actually become connected, and the, and the, and the reward circuits of your brain rewire under the influence of these um, uh, neurotransmitters and neurochemicals, such that the person you're bonded to will give you a greater sense of joy and pleasure, and hearing their voice will make you feel, just have a little skip in your heart, and, and having their hand touch you gives you a little thrill uh, in a different way than somebody else's. I mean, you have a bond with this person. Your brain actually rewires it reward circuits for this person and, and, and you and, and they have a special bond. This is, this is the way God designed it to be. Um, and these two neuro, neurochemicals also prevent the negative brain changes that happen from any addiction, from like addiction to um, chemical addictions, those changes that happen. Uh, if we do brain scans on people and look at how the circuits change when people have sexual addictions, those brain changes are the same as they get when they have chemical addictions. But when we have a healthy love relationship and oxytocin and vasopressin are being released, they actually prevent the changes that are consistent with addiction patterns. So your brain doesn't go down a negative neurobiological change when there is a love relationship and sex. However, oxytocin and vasopressin are not released in a fear state, in an anxiety state, in a dread state, in a guilt state. So sex of a pornographic nature. We've done studies on uh, uh, people when they're looking at porn, they actually fire uh, amygdala. Amygdala releases ang uh, anxiety. There's anxiety, releases fear neurotransmitters called um, norepinephrine and epinephrine, and these actually suppress vasopressin. And, and so you, you, your brain, if you practice these principles, will go down the changes that are consistent with sexual addiction. Well, this can happen within a marriage if there's not love, if there's fear instead. If anybody would like to read a book, um, that really goes into a lot of this. I would recommend a book called Wired for Intimacy by um, William Struthers. Uh, it's very well done. Very good Christian uh, principles about human intimacy and sexuality and a lot of good brain science in this book. It's by InterVarsity Press. Um, so we're still talking about do we recognize sexual immorality when we see it? We're asking the question about sexual immorality inside the umbrella or under the umbrella of Marriage. What about homosexual marriage? 
you know, those are legal in states now in, in, in this country. If somebody, if, if they get married, does that make it okay? Let me ask you this question. Can a person be saved if they are actively engaged in ongoing sexual immorality they never give up? You know this is a trick question, don't you? <laughs> well, let me ask you this question. We're still asking about the idea of sexual immorality. Keep that question in mind. Can you be saved with ongoing sexual immorality that you never give up? And under the umbrella of marriage is polygamy sexually immoral. Yes, no? Yes. Yes, no? Well, then what about Abraham and Jacob and David and Solomon? Was it immoral for them? Did they give it up? Are they going to be saved? Wait a minute. Tim? Yes. Don't you need to define marriage before you can... Put that all under the umbrella of marriage. For instance, I think uh, same-sex marriage really isn't marriage. It's partnership because marriage is defined as a man and a woman cohabiting together. And if anything else is not marriage in, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so in, yeah, so in your definition, it's a man and a woman. In the state of California and the state of Massachusetts, it's two consenting adults. But, and that's called marriage. That's what they call it. Yeah. And the Supreme Court is probably going to, in the very near future, going to make it in the whole United States. Yeah. I mean, with, the, with the, the, how many states now have made this legal? Anybody know? Five? Five states? It's, 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 it's heading this way. It's just a matter of time. And, and the reason it's just a matter of time is because the youth are growing up in a society in which they watch 15,000 sexual acts per year, and they're being indoctrinated in the system that this is healthy and normal, and the older generation which has objection to it is dying off, and they're being replaced by a new generation that has no problem with it. And so it's just a matter of time. It will be legal in this country. I don't have any problem with these people that are cohabiting, that aren't um, in a real marriage, getting all the civil rights that we have available Mm -hmm. to us. That doesn't bother me in the least. I just think the definition isn't correct. What about polygamy? Is the second wife a wife? Not really. Not really? She's a, not really no. So Bathsheba wasn't really David's wife. So Solomon didn't really have a legitimate claim to the throne. Because he was illegitimate. Well, this is my point. God chose him. So what's going on? So polygamy, if, 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 if was polygamy sin for Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon? It was destructive for them. Sure was. Did they give it up? Do we expect them to be in heaven? Yeah. But they didn't give it up. Well, what's the mindset of that generation? That did, and they probably didn't even think about doing anything different than that. Yeah, and what about um, people in certain parts of the world today who convert to Adventism? Where in that society it's legal, it's cultural, it's normal, they convert and they have three, four, five wives. What do we do? Some of them do, but their other wives away. Actually, in some parts of the church, this is, this is conflicted. We, we don't have a clear answer, I don't believe. In uh, some parts of the uh, world, the, they won't let them. A man cannot join the Adventist church with more than one wife. So what does he do? He gets rid of all but his favorite. And they're left destitute, destitute on the street, unable to, uh, homeless, because Adventist church is standard for principles. Right? In some places, they argue that no, they should allow them into the church because it would be cruel and unloving to throw these women out on the street. Hmm. Yes, right there. When they put the other wives... Um out because they are not legally a or considered a wife. It just feeds prostitution because prostitution is a means of survival for many people. Did y'all hear that? You said when they when they force the wives to be put onto the street, basically dis- divorced or or disavowed, that it meant forces many of them into prostitution. It's the only way to survive. Hmm. 
Yes, Russell. And yet in the time of Ezra, um, you know, the Lord commanded the Israelites to divorce their wives. Ah, but there was a specific reason in that case. It wasn't because of polygamy. Correct. What was the reason? They were going to be led into idolatry. It was, it was only to divorce their pagan wives. If the pagan wife had converted and was a faithful like, like Ruth, Boaz, no, he didn't get rid of her. Okay, so it wasn't that she wasn't from genetic bloodline. It was those whose hearts were going to divert the Israelites away from their faith to the Lord. Don't stay married to an unfaithful wife who's going to divert you away. Basically what Solomon's wife did to him. So it wasn't polygamy for the reason. It was because of the unfaithful heart. Yeah. Different reason, but that is true. So let's talk, though, this question, because I think I left a question out there, and I don't want to necessarily leave it unanswered, um, that may make some of you uncomfortable, this idea of ongoing sexual immorality that you never give up and being saved. What happened in those cases? Well, let's consider David and Bathsheba for a moment. It certainly was immoral for David to have an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, wasn't it? Yes. Um, Why was it not immoral? Oh, question, way in the back. Uh, Eric says uh, they should continue to support the ones they put out. Don't just put them out, but still support these people, these women. Okay. Um, why was it not immoral, if you think about this? David had an adulterous... Let's, look, let's, let's just play down the, the line here, the, the history of events, how they unfolded. David has an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He tries to, of course, bring Uriah back to make it appear that Uriah uh, is the father of this child. Uriah doesn't fall for it, and so he has Mariah, Uriah killed. And then, of course, Nathan comes, confronts David with the parable. David is convicted, falls down, repents... Has a change of heart, Psalms 51. David's a man after my own heart after this. He repents. What's repentance mean in regards to sin? What do you do with your sin when you repent? You turn toward it or away from it? You turn away from it. And then after his repentance, what did he do with Bathsheba? He married her. After his repentance and a new heart. What's going on with that? He didn't get rid of her. It's like, wait, he got his cake and and got to eat it too. What is that? Very well said. This is the point. Once he had a new heart, see, when, before before there's this conversion experience in all of us, who do we live for? We live for self, to gratify self, to promote self, to put self ahead. Who was David living for when he had the relationship with Bathsheba? Who was he living for when he had Uriah murdered? After he had a converted heart, now if his heart's changed to be like Christ, who's his heart orientation going to be for? Others, right? Others. And in this case, he now has a heart for the welfare of the one he injured, which is Bathsheba. And so, in that society, having already killed her husband, he had not just, he had taken her dignity, he'd taken her station, he'd taken her sustenance, he'd taken her property, he'd taken everything from her. She would have been a prostitute on the street. The only way to restore as far as possible what he had taken from her in that society was to marry her, which gives her dignity, gives her, uh, her, her reputation back, gives her station, gives her security, gives her sustenance, ultimately gave her the heir to the throne. So he restored. And I think you can see God, this may be also one of the reasons why God allowed that union to have the heir to the throne, because it's a powerful metaphor when we fall into sin and we return to God, how he restores what sin rotted away from us. And she ultimately ended up in a higher station in the restoration than where she was to start with. She, where she was, she fell. And this is what actually um, some Christian writers say about humanity. Humanity was made in a station in God's image in Adam. Adam fell into sin. Christ came and elevates man in Christ to a closer union with God into a higher station than man actually had before man sinned. So I think you see this played out here as well. This is redemptive. This is restorative. This is, by the way, level six moral thinking. Level six, it's principles of restoration love. Level four moral thinking is rules. 
the rules are broken, and you can't marry her because polygamy is wrong. Uh, because you've repented, you have to turn away from her. She's the source of sin. She has to be put out. She must be punished. She needs to be stoned. This is level four thinking. We did this a couple of weeks ago or two weeks. Last week, was it? Last week, yeah. So this is a good example here. And so this is exactly why then when you go back to Abraham, Abraham had a similar crisis and problem. But Abraham also came to have a change of heart. Same thing with Jacob. Jacob had a similar crisis and problem. Okay, And there's beauty in this lesson because who of us have not had crisis and problems? Who of us have not had falls? Who of us have not made mistakes? And the point is not have we had a history of crisis and falls or problems. The point is have we had a change of heart so we operate differently from now on? And now we find that Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, um, David, Solomon were able to to have these polygamous relationships, but they'd come to a point in their personal journey where their hearts had changed such that if David had to do it over with his with his heart the way it was, he wouldn't have had the relationship with Bathsheba. He wouldn't have murdered Uriah. You see, he wouldn't have put himself in that position. Uh, Jacob wouldn't have deceived his dad, wouldn't have lied to his brother. You see, they had this change of heart that came later. So when we look about the, the saving process, yes, they continued in those relationships, but their hearts were not the same anymore. They were no longer operating in those relationships for self-gratification, self-promotion. They were operating in those relationships with an other-centered, love, loving orientation. Does that make sense? So how would we define sexual immorality? Question still hanging out there. Would it, be, would it not be actions, thoughts, behaviors, Attitudes that degrade and destroy the image of God within you or another person. This is sexual immorality. Whatever it is, whatever the actual specific thing is, if it degrades and destroys the image of God in you or another person, it's immoral. Agreed or not agreed? Okay? Activities, practices, thought processes which increase selfishness and decrease genuine other-centered love are immoral. Agreed? Yes, way in the back again. I have a question from Robert. Curious what Dr. J thinks about Paul's writing in Romans 8. It seems that even he is talking about a lifelong struggle with doing right and wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah. Romans 8, which portion? Which portion? <laughs> yeah, you see, I mean... You have to come back and tell me. Yes, um, yeah, which, which, which portion? Um, and Eric, give us a, a specific example and we'll, we'll, we'll comment on it. Um, so Sunday's lesson, Seven. Sunday's lesson, Paul uh, speaks of Paul's desire for the believers to uh, bound more in love and holiness and Christian unity with one another. What does this love look like? What does it look like to have Christian unity with one another? Mm-hmm. Oh, she says, always thinking of others. Well, I think Hugh Hefner is always thinking of others. <laughs> Well, does it matter what we're thinking? Yes. Hmm. Always thinking of the good of others, huh? Always thinking to bless others. Yes. Um, maybe, maybe this question. What interferes with our today, here, now, ability to love others as Christ loves us? What, what gets in our way? What, what, what obstructs us? Okay, selfishness. So say our biologic wiring. We're wired with fear and insecurity. We just have this instinct to, with, with default. Our default mode is, uh, wait, 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 wait. And we're automatically scanning for how that's going to somehow be dangerous to us, whether it's somebody's not going to like us, we're going to be rejected, it's going to be in financial, we don't have the money for that. We're always thinking self-referenced orientation to the way we view the world. This is our wiring. So that's clearly in the way. Other things. Misunderstanding. Misperception and thinking there's threats when there are no threats. Because that plays on our fears. Because we're already oriented to watch out for threats. And so we misperceive and see threats that don't exist. It inflames our fears. We become more self-oriented and self-protective. How about miseducation? Meaning, what we have learned throughout life which biases us and prejudices us against other people. Miseducation. It's a barrier to loving. Yes. The way that culture is set up, 
we live in a broken world. And so because of how things are set up to deal with a broken world, it prevents us also from doing certain things. Absolutely. Yes. Busyness of life. Christ talked about this in the parable where the seed takes root and the, and the thing and the weeds come up and choke it out. The busyness of life. How about the false, uh, the false American dream, or should I just say the American dream? The American dream, which is a false dream. What's the American dream? To own your own home, car, TV, capitalism, get stuff. The more stuff, the happier. The more you can get. So we want you to be happy, so we want you to get a lot of stuff. So we want you to have a car loan. We want you to have a mortgage. We want you to have a loan for your furniture. We want you to have credit cards so you can go out and get stuff. Get deeper and deeper in debt. So you can get stuff to have the American dream. It's a lie. The deeper in debt you go, the less freedom you have. The deeper in debt you go, the less freedom you have. You're less capable of helping and volunteering and being because you're worried about making your mortgage payment, your house payment, your car payment, your credit card payment, and you've got to work, 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 work to serve your debt, and you can't work to help other people. It's a, it's a big lie. The American dream is a lie. We are to have a different dream. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, if you read the book of Thessalonians, especially the first book, but both books, he is pointing them to an eternal dream. We are to be dreaming towards the day when there's a trumpet call of God and the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ rise first, and we which are alive, we caught up together with them. We are to have a dream of an eternal reality when Christ returns, a universe where there's no selfishness and pain and suffering, where there is no debt, where everybody loves you more than they love themselves. And you love everybody else more than you love yourself. This is to be our dream for the future, isn't it? Not the American dream about getting stuff but Christ's dream about a universe free of fear, or we love others. Do we raise our children with that as the dream? Or do we dream for gold medals? An endorsement contract with Nike. To have a million hits on our Facebook page. Monday's lesson. First paragraph says, First uh, Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, forms a, a complete unit of thought. The will of God for each Thessalonian believer is, holy and san- is holiness or sanctification. What Paul means by holiness here is explained by the two following clauses. Each believer is expected to avoid sexual immorality and control his own body. Paul concludes the unit of thought with three motivations to holy living. One, God is the avenger in these matters. Two, he has called us to holiness. And three, he gives us the spirit to help us. Wow. Thoughts about this. What do you think of the idea that sexual immorality is bad because God will take vengeance upon you if you do it? He says it's bad because of what you do to somebody. But, but there's a suggestion here that God is the avenger in these matters. If this is true, that God will use his power to exact vengeance on those who have struggled with sexual immorality, if we could only just, just get Jesus to persuade God not to be so vengeful, to be kind and gracious, then there wouldn't be anything wrong with sexual immorality, right? Be fine. Wrong. The problem is not with sexual immorality's problem is not with God. This idea that God is the avenger shifts the burden of responsibility and the, and the, and the source of damage away from the inherent destructiveness that behavior has on the one practicing it to an external being who is someone we may must fear lest he take vengeance upon us. Um, I think that's why he, he kind of clarifies it in verse 8 that he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives us the Holy Spirit. So if, if we are rejecting God, we're rejecting the Holy Spirit that's helping us, and therefore we're going to go down with the consequences. Did you all hear that? She said, he clarifies in verse 8, if you reject this counsel, you don't reject me, you reject God. And if you reject God, you reject the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is who gives us a new heart and transforms us, gives us new motives. And so basically, we can't be free from the selfishness and the lust and the self-gratification orientation. And this is, of course, the problem that, that is right in the context here. 
Nice level six thinking. Well done. Level four thinking, however, doesn't think that way, do they? God is the avenger. And so you've done bad and, and justice requires that that bad deed must be punished. And God is the source of, uh, of justice. And so he must be the one to punish us. Yes, Russell. Kind of in the same same vein, this uh, you know statement like this reflects a, in my opinion, a misunderstanding of God's law. And since God's law is a reflection of God, then uh, you know a, a, the breaking of an imposed law would require God to be an avenger. The breaking of a natural law, the law, the the the, the breaking of the law provides its own vengeance. That's exactly right. It's, and, and it's not just sexual immorality; it's any. Immorality, any immorality, any evil, any self-centeredness perpetrated upon another person actually sears the conscience of the law, of the perpetrator, warps their character, damages their reason, hardens their heart. It changes them so that they are less and less like Christ. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner. This is the reality of God's universe. Uh, this idea, though, that God is the avenger for oh, Wendell. Well, they're just reading what it says in the Bible. You know, verse 6, the Lord is the one who punishes people for all these things. You, you have to read this with the understanding that that's how we are made. That if you start with the premise that God is love and that he has created things for our, our, our goodwill and that he truly is working in our benefit, then it's not a contradiction but if you, sit, if you sit there and read this, yes, God is the one that punishes, and you do not understand on what the premise is made, then you will come to those same conclusions. But in this discussion about the recent her over Chick-fil-A, um, the comments that were made about very on both sides were just damning to God. It was awful. Yeah, and again, then it goes back to the idea. There's a central thread that runs through the idea of God's involvement in punishment versus this next idea, closely related to another myth about God and his involvement in both punishing and causing things to happen, and that would be God and sex in general. Namely, the idea that God, uh, namely that children come forth from God's actions. Or another way to say it is, God causes pregnancies. Or, if you don't like it that way, more commonly, God creates babies. Or more commonly, children are a gift from God. This is a common myth in Christianity. That if you get pregnant, God did it. No, what's what's the more precise truth? That procreative ability is a gift from God. The ability to procreate is God's gift to mankind. How that gift is used is left up to the free sentient being. So if a man goes out and rapes a woman, God is not creating new life. That's an abuse of a gift. But it's the other side of the same coin that says God is the avenger. Same coin attributing to God because God has given abilities, because God has created his universe to operate on certain unchangeable design protocols that are sometimes referred to as laws. And because they don't change, when you operate in harmony with them, blessings occur. When you violate them, pain and suffering occurs. And because God built those protocols and built the universe to run this way, ultimately he is responsible for the way he designed things. But that doesn't mean he's responsible for free will choices that we make inside the parameters of his design. Do you see the difference? It goes back to what we believe as being the sovereignty of God. Yes the sovereignty of God. Some actually want to attribute. They get very uncomfortable with this. They get very uncomfortable with the idea that God doesn't create new babies. That you personally were not personally, individually created by God. If you look at Scripture and take inspiration, and you can use science too, but according to Scripture, God only directly created three human lives. Adam, Eve, and the incarnation of Christ. And all three of them had something in common when they came forth in, in human life. What was that commonality? Perfection. Perfection and sinlessness. 
Every one of us are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. If we actually lay at God's hand the origin of each of our individual lives as the unique persons that we are, then we say God creates sinners. And this comes out in shirts like, God made me and God don't make no junk. A couple of hands in the back. I just want to point out that it's really important to say that children who are born out of uh, strange situations instead of a beautiful little marriage are still just as valuable as a child born in a marriage. You know, to say God didn't create this child doesn't mean that the child is less valuable. You know what I'm trying to say? I do, and I'm trying to say that the person from the healthy little loving marriage, God didn't directly create them either. No, I know. I realize that. But what I'm trying to say is that sometimes we we talk about these children who are born in in bad situations um, as not being, yeah, it's not their fault, and they're still as valuable to God. Well, thanks for clarifying that, because I would never want to suggest anything about the moral right. worth or value but of the child. sometimes it comes across a little bit that way, and I don't think... Yeah, I know you don't mean it that way. No, thank you so much. No, we're but talking. I, I think it's really important to say that. Well, it was important, and I appreciate that very, very much. Thank you. I'm talking about the really responsibility. I know. I realize that. See, uh, if you hear the politicians talk, there's a politician who ran uh, in the national race a few years ago who has a Down syndrome child. And she talked nationally about how God blessed her and wanted her to have this child. God gave her this child this way. Really? See, where does this idea come from? It comes from Psalms and places where it says, God knit me together in my mother's womb. Okay, and they will quote a verse like this, and they will then concretely apply it without thought and say, well, then God wanted me to... So my patients will struggle and say, why did God want me to have schizophrenia? Why did God want my child to have autism? Why did God want my child to have bipolar disorder? He didn't. He didn't want it at all. God creates perfection always. But God gave mankind an ability, and that ability has been degraded through 6,000 years of genetic mutation, and there are so many mutants. Every new generation has a minimum of 300 more harmful mutations in your DNA than your parents had. You have 600 more than your grandparents. You have 900 more than your great-grandparents. And on down the generation, every generation is degrading with minimum of 300 more harmful mutations in your DNA than the generation before. This is what's happening. There's a book called Genetic Entropy by a guy named Sanford, uh, Applied Geneticist at Cornell University. Well, well, scientifically documents this reality. You can read it. The point being is, if we take that verse concretely at level four thinking, then if someone's born with spinal bifida, anencephalia, congenital heart defects, we would have to conclude God was having a bad knitting day. I mean, Seriously. And we would have to conclude that surgeons who repair defective hearts on infants are going against the divine will. And we should not repair those infants. God wanted them that way, we should leave them to die. Do you see how twisted this type of thinking is to lay this at God's hand? God creates through his design protocols and the, and the laws of nature and science that govern how things operate on this planet but he leaves the the sentient being the free will choice of how they use the abilities that he has given us. That's what's happening. That's how I understand it. And this idea of sexuality gets very, very confused in people. Why? Because what we talked about in the beginning class, sex is a taboo topic. We don't talk about it. We leave it in the secret. We don't mention it. And that leaves the enemy free to put all types of distortions in our minds about it. And it really distorts even our thinking about God. So, Sexuality is a gift. If we abuse the gift of sexuality, there are damaging consequences like sexually transmitted diseases, which are the least damaging, by the way. More damaging, damage to self-respect, to the image of God within. Altered intimacy in your ability for your future relationships. Damaged self-image. Pregnancy unwanted. Children being born without loving parents. Damage to character. Seared conscience. You see, sexually transmitted diseases are the least damaging. These others are much more significant. If you're, um, Tuesday's lesson, or maybe we should jump to Wednesday's lesson. Let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. 
These are sexual beings according to God's design. Have you ever thought, why did God make us like he made us? What is the primary purpose? I mean, he didn't have to make us male-female. He could have made us unisex. You know, he could have made us where we take a hair and put it in a Petri dish with another person's hair, and we come back nine months later and we got a kid. I mean, he could have made us that way. Why did he make us the way he made us? Does it have anything to say about God? We're made in his image. Does our sexuality have anything to say about God? What is the primary purpose of sex? Is the primary purpose about pleasure? I didn't hear an answer out there. Primary purpose of sex about pleasure? No. I've heard yes. I've heard no. Or is it about something else? Is the primary purpose about sex reproduction? Is it about intimacy? About unity? The two shall become one flesh. About bonding. Does this have anything to say about God? Does the way God made Adam and Eve have a higher meaning than physical pleasure? Is it an object lesson for this Bible paraphrase? Bible par, uh, not paraphrase, but uh, paragraph. Um, John 17, 20 23. This is Jesus praying. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. Do you think that God's design for human sexuality in Eden, the two shall become one, has some lesson for the unity God wants with his creation. Do you think this is why Satan wants to pervert human sexuality? He wants to disrupt that unity. He wants us to think it's all about self-gratification, pleasure. Hmm. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into the unity of love, they give of themselves and life comes forth. As a man and woman come into the unity of love, they give of themselves and life comes forth as God designed it in Eden. Hmm. Last paragraph says, on the other hand, when we follow God's design, sex becomes a beautiful illustration of the self-sacrificing love that God poured out on us in Christ. It is the gift of God and enjoyed according to the will of God. It can powerfully reveal the kind of love that God has for humanity and the kind of closeness that he wants with his people. Are there problems when people believe sex is primarily about pleasure? Yes. Studies suggest that worldwide, 7 to 39%, depending on which study in which country, of men visit a prostitute sometime in their life. Many become long-term repeat customers of the same prostitute. Now, why do men often return to prostitute and pornography for sexual gratification? Well, there are several reasons. One... They want the physical gratification without commitment and responsibility. Two, to go to a prostitute avoids the fear of rejection. Don't worry about rejection there. Okay? And a lot of people, but, but, but notice the motivation. First motivation is about self. I want a gratification without personal responsibility or commitment. So I don't have to give anything. I can just take what I want and what I need. And so I'm going to pleasurize myself through these various avenues. The second one uh, avoids fear of rejection. It's still about what? Self. It's still about self. I'm worried about me, about what's happening. my ego. My ego can't take rejection. So I'm going to. And then the third big reason why men do this is it's a straightforward exchange with no hidden expectations and no after experience arguments. <laughs> so again, it's about it's not a hassle for me. I know what I'm going to get. It's clean. It's done. It's over. I get what I expect. Now that, that particular reason has a cutting, has a, has a double edge on that one. It's selfish, but it also should say something to how people relate to each other. Are sometimes women not necessarily open and direct, but play games? 
could that be uh, you know, uh, 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 unhealthy for relationships? Might it be easier if people were just upfront and say, you know what, you're a nice guy, I like you, but I'm not really interested in dating you. But hey, we can be friends. Sex alters one's mood and neurochemistry, and sexual gratification with porn and prostitute results in the negative neurobiologic changes of sexual addiction, loss of self-control. In Thursday's lesson, it's entitled, you'll love this, Mind Your Own Business. That's the title of Thursday's lesson, Mind Your Own Business. What do you think of the title? You like the title? Paul's solution, it says, last paragraph, um, states, Paul's solution to the Thessalonian problem was to encourage them to be ambitious, aspire not for power or influence, but to live quiet lives that would involve minding one's own business and working with one's hands. Uh, Thoughts came to my mind about that. So what does it mean to mind one's own business? To purposely ignore the needs of those around you. (laughs) To pretend others have no issues or problems. To offer no help to other people. I'm minding my own business. The idea of minding one's business, is it about being a hermit and isolating from others and disengaging from others? Or is it about only being involved in healing, loving, redemptive, supportive, and nurturing ways and, dis- and, and avoiding hurting, gossiping, rumor-monging, and meddling with other people's lives? So we're involved, but we're only involved in positive ways, not in those destructive ways. Well, what about on a community level? Mind one owns, mind your own business. Leave quiet lives, as Paul said. On uh, a community level, do we mind our own business when the government goes to war, passes laws, infringes on personal liberties? Do we mind our own business? Do the Amish stay, who stay so engaged and in, 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 in involved, are, are, are they modeling Paul's, Paul's guidance here for us? Or have they gone too far over an edge to an extreme? Mind one's own business. Any thoughts, questions as we bring our class? I want to... Yes, Wendell. In the story of Christmas Carol, there's Scrooge and his former partner. His former partner comes back and says, the world is your business. Uh, the, yeah, the, you mean the ghost of Christmas past? Well, Wasn't it the ghost it was, of Christmas past? The ghost, this Christmas, or it was his former partner. I don't remember which. Okay. He said, you know, society and the world was your business. It's not just your business. Not just making money. Right. Yeah, caring for people. Yeah. Yes. And so as Christians, what is our business? Is our business not to be the salt of the earth, the light on a hill, to let your light so shine before men that they, they see a different and healthier way, to be a witness? And can you do that in isolation? No, we have to be interactive, but we interact with different methods and principles that stand apart and are distinct. She said Christ illustrated that with the story of the Good Samaritan. Of course, Christ illustrated that with his own life. He ate with the tax collectors and prostitutes and, and others. Yes, think about what it would be like. Think that through, guys. Seriously. Your senior pastor had a prostitute over his house for dinner. He's eating with the prostitute. Are we going to mind our own business or are we going to gossip and meddle? Hmm. Could we really witness that way? Could any of us in this room really get by with taking a prostitute out to, out to dinner? Christ went to dinner with the prostitute. Wow. He didn't go alone. Oh, he, okay, he didn't go alone. Okay. okay. He didn't take his wife, though, did he? No, he took 12 men. So me and 12 men go to, prost- uh, to dinner with a prostitute. What are they thinking? Hmm? That's, that's the, uh, that's a, what's the, what's the Duke, uh, uh, what's that team? You know what I'm talking about? The lacrosse, the lacrosse team. There you go. Remember, that was in the news. I'm just pointing out, sometimes to do what's right, really open yourself up to criticism and really is risky. It's really risky. And why do we not do some of that stuff? Is it because we're acting in love or we're acting in self-protection? Got to protect my own reputation. Got to protect self. Self-protection. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? I even think about that. It scares me. It gives me the willies. Whew. I know what would happen to me. <laughs> it would be crucifixion. You know it. 
sad, isn't it? Isn't it sad that we live in a, in a society where some of our decisions might be based on the fear of what people would do to us if we, do, if we do the right thing? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, that you are love and you operate on principles that are constant and restorative and redemptive and that you are gracious and forgiving and that you see through the, the mire and, and the confusion of this world. We ask that you will pour your spirit into our hearts and minds. Give us clarity. Give us discernment. We thank you. You created us the way you have, but your creation has been damaged, or we've been damaged. We've been damaged genetically. We've been damaged psychologically. We've been damaged spiritually, and we certainly need your healing and restoration. We pray that you'll give us wisdom on how to understand the sexual gifts that you've given us, how we can... uh, maintain our spirit temple in a, in a holy and healthy way and that we can live in harmony with your design and that we can also witness to others as the salt of the earth, the light on the hill, that they can see your kingdom and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.